0: Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we chatted with Rhymefest, spoke to a Cuban author about Havana's past and future, and learned about life in a utopian commune. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on Lumpen Week in Review for October 13, 2017.
1: Mario Smith spoke with Chase Smith, better known as Rhymefest. The songwriter, hip-hop artist, and philanthropist talked about his Grammy Award-winning career, the highs and lows of the music business, and the heart of Chicago. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m.
2: Joining me on the phone right now, let me tell you something, man. There was a time when I would see this brother at Elbow Room, and him and Juice would get going in that parking lot, (laughs) <laughs> and they would burn that bad boy down. Not to mention when they got on stage and did stuff. Um, he is one of the most complete artists I've ever met in my life, and I'm not just saying it because he's one of my guys. He he is an award-winning composer. He's a philanthropist. The man ran for Alderman. He takes out the garbage. He does it all. Ladies and gentlemen, my man Ryan Fest is on the show. What's up, Fest? Yo, what's
3: up, my brother? And I, and I must say, you are a complete, brother as well and there's never been a time where where I've been down and then looked at you and or talked to you and and you have not immediately like lifted me up so man thank you because it's not always easy being a brother of somebody like me man so thank you so much for your brotherhood Mario
2: I appreciate that. The not expecting that my man. You know how I go. We we, we we've had this talk a couple of times. I re, i and not to to expose too much of the business, but I remember before it happened and it being that this this meteor call Ryan fest took off, we were on a bus. And I said, You know you're not gonna be riding this bus much longer, bruh. And you looked at me, you like, word? And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. I think it's coming. And then it seems like the next day it was on and popping. So it's it's been a hell of a ride so far, but not over yet. Um, I wanted to talk to you. About a bunch of stuff uh, about you, what's going on with the music and all that. Primarily, though, I want to talk first about Donda's house. And um, I know you wanted to you had a a very honorable intention of keeping that house as it was on 78th and South Shore Drive to make that into a museum. But that just structurally can't happen. Can you talk a little bit about why that can't happen and what the plan is moving forward?
3: Sure. So, a uh, little less than a year ago, we purchased uh, Kanye's childhood home, the, the house of Dr. Don West, and it's a part of what we call lighthouses, where we believe that there are a lot of valuable assets in our community that are just deteriorating and. You know, these are houses that Shaka Khan lived in or Bernie Mac lived in, and we can take these spaces and activate these spaces not only as museums but, but also as uh, activity centers in the community to produce more Shaka Khans, Bernie Macs, and uh, Kanye West, and, you know, whoever else. So we, the first house we purchased was the home of Kanye West, the childhood home of Kanye. And... Um, When we got to the house and had our architect go through, uh, basically the infrastructure of the house was ruined. I mean, there's nothing really salvageable, and to rehab the house how we would want with the zoning and and, and to do it for a community center how we would want uh, would cost more than if we just demolished the house and then rebuilt something in its place. So that's what we decided to do. Now, when you're talking about that, You're also talking about community investment, investments in the arts, uh, investment in the South Side. You know, is art that important that we should be giving to places like Donda's House to build an arts incubation center as we build the Obama Library and Tiger Woods put $30 million of investment in the South Shore neighborhood? And that's what we're betting on. We're betting that people will want to invest in arts on the South Side.
2: When we talk about an arts incubator, particularly in that neighborhood, which has gone through its own share of ups and downs. Back in the day when I was a young man living on 78th and Marquette, going to Rainbow Beach was a thing. Walking past the that house, um, not knowing Dr. West at the time, of course, but walking past that house was a thing. You know, that was part of the experience of being in that neighborhood. And South Shore has a lot to offer on its own merit. When you talk about building an arts incubator, that's a powerful thing because that, that gives a neighborhood a chance to see what they got, pretty much. you know, um, the, the, the hopes that you have for building this, how, how long do you think it will take? And then once you get this going, what's the initial plan in, in, in energizing the arts community in South Shore?
3: Well, we've already done a projection that the facility that we would like to build is projected to cost a million dollars. Uh, we believe that that's possible. When you look at other organizations that are comparable to the work that we've done as Donda's House, whether you're looking at YCA, whether you're looking at, you know, some of the other organizations comparable to what we do, uh, they've received fi- foundational support upwards of a million dollars, you know what I mean, and more yearly, annually. And and so we believe that we're deserving of that because the last five years, Donda's House has... Uh, worked with young people to throw festivals like the i-fest, tip fest, peace on the beach. Uh, We've worked with the Harold Washington Library with the Project Us program. We've we've had a signature program called Got Bars where we've worked with a little over 500 youth personally, and that's me one-on-one as, you know, whatever people perceive me to be. It was creative writing, bringing people like No ID, Big Sean, Killer Mike, you know, to come and not just lecture, but teach classes about the industry of music. We brought in Kenneth Cole and thrown fashion shows. I believe that Dondas House deserves the investment, and it's going to cost about a million dollars to build this facility once the facility is built. What we look forward to is collaborating with other organizations in the South Shore area, so this can't just be Donda's house. There has to be people like Coomba Lynx and Lyric and uh hip hop detox. We have to all begin to collaborate to bring what it is we all do best to the table and empower youth.
2: I agree. I also like the fact that knowing having known Dr. West and she would have been all in on that on all of that um. I, I had the pleasure of being I think you were there too. I'm almost sure you were, when it was Common's mom, Ye's mom, and Talib Kwali's mom at Chicago State. And that was such a powerful night to see these three women, these three very uh, accomplished women and their sons, right? Just it was it was more of that. I'm I'm kinda like, let's do more of that. Let's let's really be about the business of collaborating and, and and putting things in order. All right, so we've got that. Now let's talk about you for a minute, sir. What's what's going on? <laughs> what yeah, you
3: bro. what are
2: you doing these days besides saving the world?
3: You know, I, I decided to stop chasing, and and one of the things I tell a lot of artists now is, what are you chasing? And then you get so upset when you don't get you know, things that, that we as real as as authentic artists, things that we call all oh, the corporate hip hop and evil and this and that and we hate all of it, yet we chase it. And so what I'm teaching artists is if if you really care about your art, live life like art. And don't chase because the people who are the biggest, whoever you, you love, weren't chasing fame. They were chasing truth. And so I've been living my life in that way, and uh, I've been blessed, bro. I I recently uh, finished a movie with Emilio Estevez, Gabriel Union, Michael K. Williams, and Alec Baldwin called uh, The Public. Uh, I did three songs, and one of the songs was with Jamila Woods uh, from, you know, from Chicago. My my mother got John the Offer. We did a song for the film, uh, David Banner. Um, And then. Uh I'm about to start uh this month I start my worldwide tour with Jazzy Jeff. We did an album called The Magnificent 3. Yes you did. Yeah. <laughs> yes about to you tour did. through Asia. Uh we're touring through Asia and Africa and Europe and, and I start that this month. And I'm just looking forward to the future.
2: Let me let me ask you something. How have you been able to ride that activism and music and still being on top of both of those things that's not an easy easy ride but you seem somehow over the last few years to be and the political activism as well but to be able to to do all those things do you compartmentalize stuff like okay for the next six months i'm concentrating strictly on hip-hop for the next six months after that i'm going to go right into my activism or or is this all part of the rhythm i know the answer but i just want you to kind of tell the folks listening the answer how do you do that
3: Life is like baseball. You you have to leave home to return home. That's the only way you score. And so as I leave and, and I'm blessed to accomplish this or whatever or that, I always make sure that I return home and I deal with what's at home plate. I deal with my team. I deal with my family, my city, you know. I stay involved and anchored and grounded in community because – in actuality, those are the songs that the world wants to hear. And if I don't stay grounded and anchored in what's going on here, I can't make songs that in China they understand because that's their experience too. I mean, you know, what we see is that when people move, their subject matter gets lost in outer space. And so do they. So if I want to stay grounded as an, as an artist, I have to stay grounded at home.
1: I 94 spoke to Cuban American author Achi Obejas about writing in Spanish, noir fiction, and the phenomenon of the pet foreigner. I 94 with Jeremy Kitchen, Mike Sack, and Jamie Trecker airs every Sunday at 10 a.m.
0: We are with author Achi Obejas. She is joining us live by phone from Oakland, uh, and we're going to tip her in in just one second. But I'm joined as always by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. And Michael Sack.
4: Good uh, morning, Jamie.
0: And we're going to be discussing the work of author, a local author, in fact, a former Chicago Tribune reporter who, if yeah. I remember right, won a teamwork Pulitzer uh, for a series of stuff about O'Hare Airport. Maybe she could fill us in on that. But we want to welcome into the studio, through the magic of the phone, Achi Abeas. Achi, are you with us?
5: I am. How are you?
0: Doing well, great. Amachi, you uh You touched on
4: a couple of interesting things. One is, um, is poetry, and you... You play with language really well, and it comes through very clearly in in all your work that you have a deep love of language. And um, thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, you know, Jer- Jeremy introduced me a while ago to um, Three Trapped Tigers, the the Infante novel, the Big Honker, oh, yeah. and that that that's a novel of Cuban literature, and, and it deals a lot with. Um, wordplay originally written in spanish i was wondering it's one of my favorite books of all time actually it's it's a monster and uh, i was wondering if you found it easier or more fun to to play with language in spanish or english or um if you felt a big difference between the two thinking and writing yeah what a
5: good question um my voice is very different in Spanish than it is in English, and I wish I could explain why that is, but um, um, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a little bit more serious in Spanish. Um, and part of it is because, though Spanish is my native language and I'm fully fluent in it, um, English is the language with which I grew up. And to a certain extent, especially now, um, English is the language of my everyday life. And so, to a certain extent, there's a, a a greater confidence in English, even though there may be greater comfort in Spanish for me. And so, I tend to play more in English than I do in Spanish. Although, I'm not a punster the way Guillermo Carre de Infante is. Um, You're right. right, mentioned right, right, right. Th- yeah, three trap typer. I mean, he, just, it, you know, I. I'm always very much in awe of his translators um usually it's uh Susan jo Levin. I think that's who did three Tribe tigers and um um because he is you know the punning is just nonstop right. especially uh in his later work um and he he really loved to also to take words apart etymologically and stuff like that which uh I find really fun to read but i I'm not as, as
6: inclined to, to play with them. Actually, so. I wanted to ask you a question about uh, Havana Noir and your story, and I'm going to probably slaughter it, Zenzai Zenzik, is that right?
5: Zen Zenzik, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
6: Close. I'm really bad at pronunciation. Um, so okay, First of all, I thought the story was phenomenal. I, I loved it. Thank uh, you. I, this was my favorite story in the collection, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. Oh, wow. Um,
5: There's some really good stories
6: in that collection. I know. It's, it's phenomenal. Fun. And you know what? I, I I haven't been a fan of all the noir collections. I read the Memphis one, which I liked a lot. I thought the, the retro Chicago one was good, but I didn't love the contemporary Chicago one. That's just... Um,
5: yeah, I, I thought the Contemporary Chicago one was one of the weaker entries in the series. I got it. I'm in it, but I know that it wasn't
0: the strongest one. Whoa, dissing the Contemporary Chicago one? I'm not dissing
6: uh, at you. I'm yeah. dissing the head. No, I mean I, I,
5: a, lot, a lot of people I love are in that book, and uh, I recommended, in fact, a lot of people for that book. But I do think that uh, it wasn't it wasn't as strong as some other ones. I couldn't. I mean, I agree. I, mean, I think there's some really strong ones. I think I don't know if you've read the Trinidad one. It's no. amazing.
6: I'm actually gonna yeah. I'm actually gonna email you after the show and ha- have you give us a list of all these authors you're talking about because <laughs> I'm not all one right. one of the reasons we do this show is um, uh, it's to turn people on to writers that people may never have heard of and free books and and, and free books, of course. but the other thing is, is <laughs> we like to cover um, Chicago Midwest books and translation, um, small presses. You know, things that aren't going to necessarily make sure. it make it into the New York Times bestseller list. But I wanted to Here, ask you... You're
5: doing God's work. God's work. <laughs>
6: Thank you so much. But I wanted to... You know, the character of Tom Mahler, he was like the... Um, uh, pet foreigner. Yeah, he's like the pet right? American. Uh, and they were talking about um, in the story how every family strives to have like a pet foreigner that can bring them... Things from outside the country, simple things such as flour. I believe wasn't that one of the and and Tom Mahler and the story was bringing medical uh, computer software and things like that. Is this um, mm-hmm. is this a real phenomena? The pet foreigner.
5: Oh, absolutely. That's, that's yeah. No, I didn't make that up. That's uh, and I mean that was part of my fascination. Uh, the notion of the pet. Listen, let me let me give you an example from real life okay. of how far it goes, okay? Um, a lot of the time that I was living in Havana, I was there because I had a girlfriend who was an artist. Her uh, assistant uh, had a Cuban husband. She also had a Spanish lover. And when the Spanish lover came to visit, the Cuban husband literally moved out of the house. We would help him move. <laughs> Out of her apartment, we would remove all signs of his existence, so that when the Spanish lover showed up, uh, he would, you know, not feel threatened by the Cuban lover. Her entire family was aware of this performance that had to be played out for this Spanish guy. Why? Well, because the Spanish guy would drop money on them whenever he came, and he would bring things for them that were essential. Um, especially medicine for her family um, and a lot of things for her son. Um, Eventually, she left her Cuban husband and, uh, you know, married the uh, Spanish lover. And uh, she was with him for almost, I don't know, 15 years. And then she divorced him and went back to the Cuban husband, believe it or not. Um, But, uh, you know, it's that is that is actually not as crazy a story as it might sound, this notion of actually cleaning out the, uh, the, the apartment, making it seem as though, you know, they've been waiting forever for this guy. So, it absolutely uh, does happen. I, there are a lot of situations in Cuba right now that are problematic in terms of how things work. For example, now you can buy property in Cuba, okay? It's possible now to do that. Except for the average Cuban, it's impossible to do that because, among other things, there are no mortgages. You have to have cash, uh. and and so we're talking, especially because of this inflated market, of you know, it's often you know over a hundred thousand dollars cash for you know even the most humble abode. So it it engenders the need for a, a foreign cuban partnership the cuban to have the right to buy because foreigners can't buy legally. foreigners can't buy but the cubans don't have the capital amazing. so what ends up happening is a lot of people marry or set up you know informal agreements and so you need the pet foreigner to do these kinds of things you know you um and, th- and there was a time when the pet foreigner was even more imperative for simple things, for example, there were stores that, were, that only allowed in foreigners. You had to show a foreign passport wow, to go in. Wow, that's
2: amazing.
1: in Chicago spoke to Peter Salerno of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers also known as IEEE. Salerno, a security expert, talked about enterprise systems, the Equifax data breach, and the cyber threats just around the corner. Teching Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m.
7: Our first guest today is Peter Salerno and he's here with us today to tell us about IEEE, the Cybersecurity Chicago uh, event and their regularly scheduled tech meetings. Peter, welcome to the show.
8: Thanks, Melody. I'm happy to be here. Sure. So um, I'm a senior member of IEEE, uh, so it means I've been there a long time, mm-hmm. uh, but also I'm, I'm active. Um, I started um, in uh, as an engineer and got into technology and telecommunications, kind of grew into that um, learning about security along the way. Uh, I've worked at, at multiple big companies, and the uh, they have good ways of handling security, and small businesses don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, my idea is to bring that into the smaller businesses.
7: Mm-hmm. And that—that that was one of my next uh, questions I wanted to ask you too. So, you're you're focused on digital security within small businesses. Um, what are some of the basic elements of keeping them secure? Sure. So,
8: um, I mean, the the first thing is is awareness. Um, so that that's the the key mm-hmm. thing for businesses, um, and the thing to be aware about is that breaches happen because a person did something wrong or mm-hmm. they didn't do something right. Technology is a safety net. So mm-hmm. everything that I do is really, uh, technology-wise, is a safety net for when something does go wrong because people mm-hmm. will do something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at at businesses, and when they are... Um, when I sit down with them, try to understand what they're doing, try to figure out the layers of security that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we start with things like network and endpoint security. We talk about website security. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, we go in the core thing is uh, employee awareness. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the biggest risk in any business. Uh, so, um, and, uh, you know, we got to look at why there's breaches and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think.
7: Yeah, well, that, well, that is my next question. I wanted to educate our listeners a bit here um, because we have a lot of people listening who are not currently in the tech industry or wondering what all this stuff means. Well, we're going to help them out a little bit.
8: Now, um, what, let's start with what is a, a data breach? So that a data breach is essentially a compromise to the integrity of your information that mm-hmm. a business has. It, it could be just someone broke in and stole paperwork. Um, so physical security is also a key thing. But um, what's being protected is important. So there's personal identifying information. There's mm-hmm. personal health information. There's user credentials. Mm-hmm. All those things are things that need to be protected. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where um, you know, I try to focus, identify that. Um, and then we also talk about why. Mm-hmm. Why, why is these breaches happening? Um, and it, you know, it comes down to money.
7: Mm-hmm. Pe- because people go in and steal the information, they figure out how to steal it, and then they publish it online. Exactly. There are all kinds of uh, all kinds of different forms uh, that it takes. It's it's very interesting. But the, the big the big thing is people's information gets exposed online, where someone who isn't a part of the company that they, it comes from can access it or buy it or use it somehow. Mm. Now I wanted to ask you too. Um, there are some other ways a person's online credentials can be threatened, and here are some some tech words coming at you here: um, phishing, vishing, and smishing. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, very. Uh, I I was looking forward to saying that all day today. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> So, so let's start. So, phishing people might be aware of, right? So that's the email, the email scam, right? And then the the vishing that is the the phone. If someone calls and it's a telephone scam trying to get your information, like um, you owe money to the IRS, do this immediately or something to threaten people. And and then the smishing is the the bogus um, te- text okay. messages, yeah. So and what? So can you so, elaborate on a little bit sure, of that?
8: Sure. They all play on uh, essentially social engineering. So that's where they play on emotion. Mm-hmm.
7: Um,
8: they they try to catch people off guard, um, and that's that's where most of these breaches occur. Mm-hmm. You know, you see an e- an email from UPS and. You know, you can't remember if you ordered something, so you click on the tracking information, and bam, you're in.
7: Boom. Yep.
8: Um. Yeah. Same.
7: Yeah, and uh, and so well, th- thanks for helping our, our listeners to to understand some of these things. So, um, hopefully, uh, someone someone out there listening learned something today. Um, but the biggest news story in security lately has to be the Equifax breach. Um, Peter, can you give us a, a rundown on what happened
8: in this breach and what your thoughts are on it? Sure. Uh, well, first, let's talk about the data that was lost. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's extremely sensitive data. Um, most breaches are credentials, which have a shelf life of a few months. This was your personal identification information, your birth date, your social security number, which is a lifetime thing. So it's it's, it's very long-lasting effect. Um, and uh, so uh, I just read what uh, Rich Smith, the, their ex-CEO now, uh, reported to the FBI. Mm-hmm. And um, he gave a rundown. So um, there's a product that they use, which is Apache Struts, which is a framework uh, from Apache. Apache is a software product, which uh, is a web server,
1: mm-hmm. um,
8: and it's, it's one of the, lar- it's the largest web server out there. Um, Apache Mm -hmm. also creates a product called Tomcat, which is an application server. Struts overlays that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there was a security patch that should have been applied. Uh, Did not get applied. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's reasons for that. I mean, not every patch gets applied when it comes out because people want to test. It could affect the application. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing is, they weren't doing other things as well. So they got breached um, somewhere May thirteenth or so. Uh, the patch was out May 9th, so it was, they had a few days where they could have tested it. They didn't know until July thirtieth mm-hmm. that they were breached. Mm-hmm. Um, they should have been looking at heuristics. They should have been looking at things that were happening that weren't normal inside their network, and they weren't watching that. Um, they didn't announce it to you know uh, August fifteenth. I think is where mm-hmm. they actually uh, you know started doing some announcements, but um, so it was a massive, massive thing um, it's going It's going to hurt people for a long, long time.
7: Mm-hmm.
8: Um, so and I, I did have conversations with um, uh, Dan McConchie, which is my state senator, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nick Sauer, who's the um, representative and hope they hope they're listening today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we, t- we we talked about you know the fact that you know maybe Illinois can do some legislation to help. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the federal government's going to have to do something. But uh, three days ago, the IRS just gave a seven and a quarter million dollar contract to Equifax to protect us mm-hmm. um, uh, from f- from fraud and help identify taxpayers. So when we submit our things. This same company, which should be punished, is also now being rewarded by, you know, a contract from the government.
0: This week on The Trump Diaries. Is Trump moving toward World War III? Russian hackers made deeper inroads than previously suspected. Ivanka and Trump Jr. avoided indictment for misleading property buyers in 2012. Pence walks out. And is the dream dead? These are the Trump Diaries. Day 259, October 5th. The Senate Intelligence Committee acknowledged they've been unable to confirm elements in the explosive Steele dossier. That dossier made a number of claims about Trump, but the author, Christopher Steele, has not agreed to meet with Senate investigators. Robert Mueller has taken over FBI inquiries into the Steele dossier. Steele is apparently cooperating with Mueller and has spoken with him multiple times. U.S. intelligence agencies have taken Steele's dossier far more seriously than previously acknowledged. And Russian-linked Facebook ads specifically targeted Michigan and Wisconsin. Two states Trump won by less than 1% of the vote. The ads promoted divisiveness and anti-Muslim messages. Experts say if there is collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, it would have to have been seen here where Russian operatives would have needed ground-level assistance to know which counties in those states to target. Trump beat Hillary Clinton in Michigan by about 10,000 votes. In Wisconsin, Trump won by only about 22,000 votes. And Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. apparently avoided a criminal indictment in 2012 after Trump's personal lawyer met with the Manhattan District Attorney. For two years, prosecutors had been building a criminal case against Ivanka and Trump Jr. for misleading prospective buyers in the Trump Soho Hotel. But lawyer Mark Cassowitz donated $25,000 to District Attorney Cy Vance Jr.'s re-election campaign and three months later, the case was dropped. Notably, the DA overruled his own staff. Kasowitz then made an even larger donation of more than $50,000 to Vance's campaign. Russian hackers stole NSA data about U.S. cyber defenses last year. A contractor removed the highly classified material, put it on his home computer, apparently to aid him in crafting a resume, and then used an antivirus app made by Russia-based Kaspersky lab. The U.S. government has banned the use of Kaspersky software over concerns of Russian cyber espionage. It is unclear, but suspected that the software contains backdoors that Russian spy agencies can use. And Trump criticized the Senate Intelligence Committee for continuance in investigation into possible collusion between Russia and his campaign, tweeting, quote, Why isn't the Senate Intel Committee looking into the fake news networks in our country to see why just so much of our news is just made up fake? and the House GOP passed its budget with calls for more than $5 trillion in spending cuts over the next decade. The budget plan promises deep cuts to social programs while paving the way for a GOP drive to rewrite the tax code later this year using budget reconciliation and avoid a Democratic filibuster. Day 260, October 6th. In the wake of the Las Vegas massacre, the NRA endorsed tighter restrictions on devices that allow a rifle to fire bullets as fast as a machine gun. This is a rare, if small, step for a group that has vehemently opposed any new gun controls. Top congressional Republicans also said they'd be open to banning the gun conversion kits, known as bump stocks, that the Vegas sniper used to turn his semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic weapon. Trump plans to announce next week he will decertify the international nuclear deal with Iran, saying it is not in the national interest of the United States. That will kick the issue to Congress, which has shown no appetite to remove the deal. The deal is widely considered to be effective, but Trump has continually railed against it as was negotiated by Barack Obama. One expert noted the move allows Trump to have his cake and eat it too. Trump moved to roll back federal requirements that mandate employers to include birth control coverage in their health insurance plans, vastly expanding exemptions for those that cite moral or religious objections. The new rules, which fulfill a campaign promise by Trump, are already drawing lawsuits. More than 55 million women have access to birth control without co-payments. Because of that coverage mandate, hundreds of thousands of them could lose birth control benefits they now receive at no cost under the Affordable Care Act. Trump made the rule requirement immediate, claiming imminent danger from, quote, risky sexual behavior. Day 261, October 7th. Politico is reporting that some of Trump's advisors would like to replace Secretary of State Rex Tillerson with CIA Director Mike Pompeo. Trump is reportedly furious that Tillerson didn't deny he called the president a F-moron. John Kelly's personal cell phone was compromised. Kelly turned his phone into the White House tech support department this summer complaining it wasn't working properly or updating, leading the breach to be discovered. Rachel Maddow has subsequently reported that all personal mobile devices are now banned in the West Wing. Also, Trump said off the cuff, quote, maybe it's the calm before the storm. The comment raised eyebrows, and it came during a photo op at the White House with Trump's national security officials. Trump said to reporters, quote, we have the world's great military leaders in this room. When pressed to explain what he meant, he simply said, you'll find out. And Jeff Sessions has rescinded a policy that projects transgender workers from discrimination. Justice had previously held that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protected employees from being discriminated against due to an individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Sessions said in the statement, Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination encompasses discrimination between men and women, but does not encompass discrimination based on gender identity, per se. That reading is novel, considering that gender identity is based on sex day 262, October 8th, Treasury employees are alleging its intelligence and analysis unit is illegally spying on Americans' private financial records. Other intelligence agencies apparently have been using the Treasury's intelligence division as a backdoor in order to gain access to citizens' financial records. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin oversees these operations. And Trump lashed out at Senator Bob Corker, the Tennessee Republican whose support will be critical to the White House on tax reform and the fate of the Iran nuclear deal. Trump said on Twitter, the senator had decided not to run for re-election because he, quote, didn't have the guts. Senator Bob Corker begged me to endorse him for re-election in Tennessee. I said no, and he dropped out, said he could not win without my endorsement. Corker shot back, it's a shame the White House has become an adult daycare center. Someone obviously missed their shift this morning. And Eric Prince, the founder of security contractor Blackwater and the brother of Betsy DeVos, is seriously considering a Republican primary challenge for a Senate seat in Wyoming. Prince is seeking to challenge John Barrasso, a senior member of the Senate Republican leadership. He has been urged to run by Stephen Bannon, who is leading the effort to shake up the Republican leadership. And Vice President Mike Pence walked out of an NFL game in his home state of Indiana on Sunday after nearly two dozen players and the visiting San Francisco Niners knelt during the playing of the National Anthem. I left today's Colts game because POTUS and I will not dignify any event that disrespects our soldiers, our flag, or our National Anthem, Pence wrote on Twitter after the Colts and Niners had begun their game. Pence appeared to be following orders and the trip appeared to be staged. Trump said he had asked the Vice President to, quote, leave stadium if any players kneel disrespecting our country. Pence's stunt cost taxpayers close to $250,000. Day 263, October 9th, The Washington Post is reporting that Russian agents spread disinformation across Google's many advertising products with significant spends. Google runs the world's largest online advertising business. The discovery is significant also because the spend was not connected to the known troll farm that used Facebook or Twitter, indicating that campaign is far bigger than previously thought. And Trump sent a list of hardline immigration proposals to Congress in exchange for overhauling the DREAM Act. Trump's list, which was immediately called a non-starter, includes funding his wall along our southern border, the denial of federal grants to sanctuary cities, and cracking down on minors fleeing crime in Central America. Trump created the crisis himself by repealing DACA earlier this year. And Bob Corker lashed out at Trump in an extraordinary set of comments to The New York Times, saying Trump is treating his office like a reality show, and his reckless threats could set the nation, quote, on the path to World War III. Corker, who is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, added that Trump acts, quote, like he's doing The Apprentice or something. I know for a fact that every single day at the White House, it's a situation of trying to contain him. Day 264, October 10th. Trump threatened on Tuesday to use federal tax law to penalize the National Football League over players who kneel in protest during the national anthem. Trump said that Congress should eliminate a law that has allowed the NFL central office to avoid paying taxes as a nonprofit profit entity. Why is the NFL getting massive tax breaks while at the same time disrespecting our anthem flag and country Trump wrote change tax law. And Trump plans to sign an executive order aimed at expanding access to loosely regulated health insurance plans, a move that could give consumers more coverage options but would further destabilize Obamacare markets. The order is expected to follow trade associations and allow them and other groups to offer their own health care plans. Those so-called association health plans would be exempt from some of Obamacare's strict regulations and could be sold across state lines. And First Lady Melania Trump fired back after Ivanka Trump said she's the First Lady because she was Trump's first wife. In a statement, Melania said, quote, She plans to use her title and role to help children, not to sell books. There is clearly no substance to this statement from an ex. Unfortunately, only attention-seeking and self-serving noise. Day 265, October 11th. Carter Page, the former Trump foreign policy advisor, told the Senate Intelligence Committee he will not cooperate with any requests to appear and will plead the fifth. The FBI has been monitoring Page since last year's trip to Russia where he met with high level associates of Vladimir Putin. And Trump continued his attacks on NFL players, suggesting he would use federal tax law to penalize NFL players who kneel in protest during the national anthem. Trump tweeted, quote, Why is the NFL getting massive tax breaks while at the same time disrespecting our anthem flag and country? tax law. Trump also challenged Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to an IQ test. Trump said, quote, I think it's fake news of Tillerson's moron comment, but if he did that, I guess we'll have to compare IQ tests, and I can tell you who is going to win. Mensa later sent out a release stating they would be happy to administer those tests. And BuzzFeed reports that Steve Bannon privately slammed the choice of Mike Pence as VP, calling the pick, quote, the price we pay for cruise bots and the Never Trump movement. Bannon is currently backing extreme far-right candidates in a bid to remake the Republican Party. Tom Steyer, a billionaire California investor who spent more than $91 million supporting Democrats in the 2016 election, said he would only fund and support Democrats who pledged to impeach and remove Trump if they won. In a letter to the party, Steyer described Trump as, quote, a clear and present danger to the republic. And the Washington Post reports that Trump has made 1,318 false or misleading claims over the past 263 days. That averages five claims a day, and Trump has increased the pace of his lies since his six-month mark. In addition, a new morning consult poll that founds that Trump's support has slipped in every state since he took office. These are the Trump Diaries.
1: Nancy Clem spoke to Joshi Radin about her experience growing up in a commune in upstate New York. Radin talked about what mattered most as a child, the moment when she had to reevaluate her life, and what utopia meant back then. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the
9: second Monday of the month at noon. And I am sitting with Joshi Radin right here. Hi. Hi, Joshi. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Joshi right now before we get started in our conversation. Joshi Radin is an artist from Ithaca, New York. She is also a divinity school dropout with some monastic training under her belt. She has worked as a wheatgrass farmer, Buddhist book publisher, editorial production assistant, editorial and commercial photographer, community activist, educator, and researcher. She is currently finishing up graduate work in uh, Chicago. And and I didn't know this when I fir- first met Joshi because um, I met Joshi uh, because she wanted to do some filming of me and my land. And uh, this kind of came forward um, that she was raised in a hippie experimental back to land community. Wait, I want to go back when, we fir- when I first met you. Okay. It was when
10: uh, you and Brian Holmes were speaking. And I think I told you this. I came up to you afterwards because I said, you just remind me so much of home. And I emailed my mother and I bought. The your um, pamphlet, your book, uh-huh. and um, that was that's that was the preface to wanting to film you.
9: Yeah, I remind you of a hippie. <laughs> um, I don't even know
10: that I would identify it as a hippie. That's I'm good, not even that's sure good. what that means. <laughs> but um, I, I told my mom you smelled like home. <laughs>
9: <laughs> okay, okay, we're gonna stop there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was like
10: very. Um, appealing in a way that I hadn't identified
9: since I've I'd been in Chicago. Oh, no, oh, yeah, I'm definitely not from here. Oh. Yeah, um. <laughs> well, you were raised in this commune, right? And it was a back to the land commune in Ithaca, and uh, in the first in the seventies and eighties, right? Yeah, it was in the mid seventies. Um,
10: it was a back-to-the-land commune. It was about 15 or 30 miles outside of Ithaca um, on a piece of land that didn't have um, electric lines or plumbing um, at the time and still doesn't. Um, but my my father had been part of the radical left and part of act-like active and civil rights kinds of work. And, um, My mother, they, she had left college and um, gone to live in an ashram in India, but eventually came back and then they wound up meeting at this commune. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, what was it called? (laughs) It was called the Yegad family. Um, And it was, this particular commune, and there were a few in the area. There was Lavender Hill and there was Dawes Hill. And Dawes Hill was sort of, maybe, I don't know if it was the Marxist one, but it was the more agricultural one. Um, <laughs> and then Lavender Hill was the gay one. And it was like the the gay commune, the spiritual commune, and the agricultural commune sort of on these three adjacent hills. And did you work together? I mean, I, they were all friendly from what I know. I mean, I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Brown Cow Farm was like just down the hill. In between um, and I think you know they were probably similarly minded folks in some respects um, but my my parents I guess were more interested in the spiritual focus so they had there was a guru and it was loosely based around Hinduism um, or Sai Baba at least initially although I think it kind of veered off that track Mm-hmm. Maybe pretty quickly. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, that's where I'm from.
9: Yeah. So um, you're saying it was based on Sai Baba's work? Like he was a, a accolade of Sai Baba? Uh, the the guru who. Um,
10: his his name is Gillocks, but he gave himself the name Freedom, and everybody subsequently had you know their commune names. Um, I think he he had um become a disciple of Sai Baba, but was also following maybe others he was you know a jew from i, I forget where but um f- for a while he was a hindu and i think now he lives in jerusalem and has gone back to being a jew yeah. um, but the people who went to the commune, not all of them were driven by spiritual questions. I think a lot of them had were just um, so fed up with society or were so cynical about um, the politics of the era or um, the intractability of the Vietnam War and um, you know there were other issues going on that would that made people consider radical alternatives to Kind of forging out into traditional life as their parents had maybe done
9: yeah and we uh, talked um, a couple days ago about how there's been a long history of, of um, people looking for alternatives and actually trying to create them with encampments or longer-term living situations um, because i'm a little bit more agriculturally focused i think about you know i always kind of go back to the nearings and um in maine who were really strong homesteaders and they left um and started doing what they were doing uh, pretty much right after the depression so it was at it was at a time where i think people's cage were rattled around like how do we how do we create more resilience when when things can collapse? And so it was motivated differently. But they were a, a touchstone for so many um, back of the landers that I think in the sixties and seventies they went back to the Nearing's work. Are you familiar with the Nearing's and the book that they very famous book they have called the The Good Life? No, I'm not.
10: <laughs> I, I, you know, there's something. And you're not you don't automatically learn about the precedents of these back to the land or <laughs> agricultural movements. It wasn't until probably somewhat recently that I discovered more of the histories of this kind of cycle.
9: And but I mean, that sounds like an interesting instance. Well these things that kind of come forward if you're you know, you're talking about um, this collection or this trio of communes in Ithaca how many are still functioning, what we you know, these people kind of throw in, they build um, a community of people, they put some structures in place, um, whether economic, social structures in place, they have to build some kind of infrastructure, so there's housing and ideas of energy and how to generate or work with them. Um, it's quite an investment, and then they tend not to uh, stick around, many of them. So maybe we can get into these questions, which I feel like come up again and again and again. Like, how do we create these alternative social structures or ways of living that are, you know, outside of capitalism or present an alternative to oppressive systems that we have adapted to for so long? How do we do that, and how do we maintain that and keep the energy going over time? Like, So maybe we can start talking about um, what you know about some histories of those three communities and in, in particular the one that you were, uh, grew up in and then um, what you kind of saw as the what, what made them fall apart. Sure, and like you said, I mean, all of my
10: um, examples that I've looked at you know they they are these temporary communities or these temporary instantiations and then they f- they fall apart. But I don't necessarily think that that failure is lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- I was where was I? I was looking at um, Chris Jennings. He wrote a recent book about utopias and the history of American utopias, and Engels referencing um, Fourier's communities as Um, kind of the first backlash to capitalism, like this desire to fight the alienation and the deteriorating social fabric that capitalism produces by creating these alternative societies. And so there's a way to think about capitalism produces these experiments, Mm. necessarily, (laughs) like, because um, people rebel, you know? People try to defy... um, Those mechanisms um and in terms of these like the 1970s examples and why they fell apart um lavender hill i'm probably the least familiar with although there was a film that came out about it i think about a year ago or a year and a half ago and i haven't seen it um the commune, the Yegad family fell apart because um, it, you know there it was a hierarchy based on a charismatic figure, based on a charismatic personality. and it just it does, that doesn't work <laughs> in the long term. He, he went crazy. Um, and eventually, you know there was an effort to recreate it as a a Zen Buddhist community mm. with a monastic, or more of like a a traditional teacher. Um, And eventually, you know, that stuck with my father, essentially, was the keeper of that kind of institution. And he ordained and more moved into town. And um, the Zen Center kind of stayed and moved with him. And when my parents separated um, and I was, you know, two, that that structure was no longer going to be the format for that commune Mm -hmm. land. So now the land is communally held, but as like under a a land sharing structure and a legal structure, whereas, you know, when it was first happening, like there was definitely no thought of sort of the legal framework. I don't think that Mm -hmm. was really a conversation. And Dawes Hill, um, I don't know exactly what happened. I think... There was disagreement about, you know, what they sh- had a function, um, but I think that was more just personalities taking over and not working, not working together. But they produced honey, and they had dahl honey for a while, and um, other, you know, they they were more the more of a productive commune. <laughs>
1: And Radio Free was joined in Studio B by musician Dan Rico. Rico played the title cut off his new album, Flesh and Bone. Radio Free airs every Tuesday in drive time, 4 to 6 p.m.
6: Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport. We're sitting with Dan Rico and listening to some of the new tunes off of his album. And uh, they will be at Cafe Mustache very soon. Dan, tell us a little bit about what you're going to play. So this is the title track off the new uh, album. It's called Flesh and Bone. Um, it's an homage to the music of Mark <laughs> Uh There so we go.
10: My baby's my weakness.
6: My baby's my sky. My baby is a honeycomb razor Shapely sweet and sharp and it hurts me so So, but I live At least I know I'm flesh and bone. For flesh and bone. For flesh and bone. For flesh and bone.
1: Produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN-LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.